Thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast. Type the word keys for $20 off. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word keys. Visit speechtherapypd.com and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome to this episode of Keys for SLPs. Keys to Successfully Pivoting During Your Medical SLP Career. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. I am the host of Keys for SLPs and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No non-financial disclosures exist. Kimry Schwartz receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this episode. She is a member of the Dysphagia Research Society, SIG-13, and the Association of Independent Fees Providers. And now we welcome our guest today, Kimry Schwarz, MS, CCC, SLP. Kimry practices in Montrose, Colorado as the owner of an outpatient clinic and mobile fees business in Colorado, Utah, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. She is also a consultant to companies offering consulting services for caseload development, treatment planning assistance, and fees training. In addition, Kimry is currently a problem-based learning facilitator for the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Loma Linda University. Kimry has a breadth of adult experience in the areas of acute care, acute and subacute rehab, long-term care, and outpatient therapy settings. For a full bio, please visit our website at speechtherapypd.com. Welcome, Kimry. We are so happy to have you on Keys for SLPs to talk about pivoting successfully as an SLP. Thanks, Mary Beth. I'm very honored to be here this morning with you. Well, we are so excited to have you. Will you tell us about yourself and your journey as an SLP? Absolutely. I have had quite a few experiences over my 24 years as being a speech pathologist When I was first out of grad school, I was very fortunate to have a position at a teaching hospital, a university hospital, and I had, it was the best place to begin my career. I had fabulous colleagues to learn from. We were an international medical center, and so we had so many different patients and diseases and different scenarios come up that it was constantly learning and diving into more literature every day. It was was a wonderful place to start. I also taught undergraduate courses for speech pathology at a local university, and I loved my career. I loved everything about it. I just didn't like Southern California. (laughs) I grew up in Colorado. I missed the snow. I missed the mountains. I missed 
not sitting in traffic. So after about nine years of being at the medical center, I decided that it was time for a change. And while I was in California, I also did a lot of PRN work in evenings and weekends at either smaller hospitals or nursing homes because I was just, I was determined to pay off my student loans quickly. So that gave me a little bit of an introduction to some other settings than just my big teaching hospital that I was fortunate to be at. Once I moved back to Colorado, I worked for a small regional hospital. I worked in acute care and med surge, outpatient, kind of everything that they needed with adults. And then was fortunate they started an acute rehab program at that hospital, and I was able to do a lot of the policies and procedures for the speech program with that hospital. After that, I became a rehab director for a skilled nursing long-term care facility, and it was that was one of the hardest jobs I have ever had, but it was also one of my favorite jobs. I learned so much about the business aspect of therapy, and it was an invaluable experience, which set me up later for having my own business. It was stressful, but the days flew by. I never was bored. And I was able to assemble, I just, we had a great therapy team and it was so much fun to go to work every day with that group of people, but it was working a lot of long hours. I know, you know, and it was salary, so I didn't get paid overtime. And one night about nine 30, I was sitting there working on a Medicare audit and just decided it was time that I start figuring out how to work this hard for myself. And so ended up leaving that rehab director position and wanted to start my own business, just wasn't quite sure what to do. So I worked PRN at a couple different nursing homes and hospitals, just trying to have income while I was making a transition and ended up being a great, a great uh, opportunity because it also allowed me to do a lot of networking with local physicians and local nursing homes, hospitals. So from there, I started a mobile fees business When I was at the teaching hospital early in my career, we had started a fees program there and I really missed doing fees and wanted to get a little more into that and back into it. So we started a mobile fees business working with hospitals and nursing homes, and that was going well. And then we kind of spread to a couple other states. And as you mentioned in the bio, Utah, and then kind of randomly Pennsylvania and Ohio, but that was going well. And then we had a physician a local physician contact us and say, you did this procedure on one of my patients in the nursing home. I had a patient walk into my my practice. They have some swallowing problems. Do you think you can help them? So at that point, it was private pay. We weren't credentialed with any of the insurance companies. So we saw that patient, helped them. And then we had a few more of those, what I call one-offs, because it wasn't what we were intending to do. And then the more we got, we started realizing we should probably go ahead and get credentialed and become a provider with Medicare and Humana and all the different insurance companies. So once we did that, you know, initially we were only seeing, we worked with our oncology center and we were only seeing dysphagia patients with head and neck cancer. And that was the bulk of our, of our practice. And Fortunately, we gained a good reputation amongst the local physicians and our outpatient practice ended up growing more and more to where we were able to take on some more therapists. And then eventually, you know, initially we were just doing that in the homes. 
And then eventually we completely shifted to where now we have an outpatient swallowing and voice therapy clinic. So that's where we're at today. Okay, Kimberly. Well, talk about pivoting. I think I lost track of how many pivots that was. <laughs> 24 years of, of pivots. <laughs> I just love your determination and your resourcefulness. You have really, you're an exemplary SLP in that. I also like that you took, the, you had the courage, you knew that you liked fees in the past, but when you opened your own mobile fees, when you opened that own business, you had not been doing it in how many years? Oh gosh, 15 years. I had to go back and do training and courses and mentorship to become competent again. Yes. I love that. That's such an inspiration to other SLPs out there who are thinking about making a change and remember something that they loved, but haven't been in it in a while. And that's one of the great things about our profession is that you are able to pivot and change. Well, and there was really a need in the communities that we serve. And how did you, um, it's so interesting that you were in Colorado at the time, but you chose these other states who were not there. Those states are not adjacent states. How did you find the different states? So I had a colleague in Pennsylvania who reached out to me. She was frustrated with her current position and, um, you know, she loved fees as well. And I, I said to her, you know, I'll help you start a business. I have developed the policies and procedures. I've developed everything. I'll help you start a business. She didn't really want her own business and basically asked if she could work for me. So it looked into the legalities of that. She is a wonderful person. She has very much an entrepreneurial spirit. She's articulate. And so it was a great risk to take with her. And that's kind of how that morphed into a business there. Oh, that's great. And how about Ohio, my my adopted home state? Yeah. So it's the same person. She lives in Western Pennsylvania, and we just have some contracts that extend to, into Ohio as well. Okay, wonderful. All right. So for other people who are contemplating a pivot, what considerations do you recommend contemplating when pivoting your career as an SLP? So I think there's several things to to look at when you're doing that, if you, what's your reason for pivoting? When, when we look at how I pivoted for my own business, not only did I see a need that I wanted to fill in the community, I wanted to have control over my ethics and standards. I also wanted to specialize my personality. I like to go down the rabbit hole. I like to understand things fully. I like to get to the bottom of, but why this? Well, then if that occurs, but why, but why? And I like to fully just dive into something and learn it. So that gave me the opportunity to specialize. I feel like it also allows us to offer the highest level care if possible to our patients because we are only doing swallowing and voice. I don't remember aphasia anymore. I love doing cognition when I did it, but I'm not up on the latest research. I'm not up on the latest treatment strategies. But by specializing, I can be with swallowing and voice. And honestly, main reason was personally wise, I wanted to control my time. I didn't want to be working till 930 every night for somebody else. I wanted to control my time. You know, if one day I want to work 18 hours, but take the next day off, I can. And living in Colorado in the winter, if I know there's a big storm coming and I want to take a day off to go skiing, I'm going to. So. 
So it's not, it has to be, it has to be a win-win in a lifestyle situation, which kind of brings us into, you know, other things for other speech pathologists to consider when they're looking at pivoting in their career. You know, one of the biggest ones is just financial. Can you afford to leave your current position? Everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to go work PRN for different places. And that's great. You may make more hourly, but if you've given up your benefits package, you know, you have to calculate what those costs are in your insurance and, and those retirement, if you have that. So financial is a big thing to consider when you're looking at pivoting your career. Emotional is also a big consideration. This last couple of years have been really difficult for patients working in hospitals and nurse, I'm sorry, for therapists working in hospitals and nursing homes. There's been a lot of loss. We haven't had normal situation to see how patients interact with each other. It's been really tough. And so I know people who have left the nursing facilities because they're just heartbroken over so many, losing so many patients. So there's that emotional component. Also under emotional, it's, it's when you're pivoting, what are you passionate about? What area do you love? What do you want to go into? Because when you're passionate about what you do, you're a better therapist and your patients have access to better care when you're passionate about what you're doing. If you're sitting in front of a patient bored doing therapy, you know, they're bored too. So true. Good point. And thank you for your honesty. You know, another thing to consider is convenience. I know in some of the more metro areas, people travel a really long way every day and you're getting up early, you're commuting, you go to work, you commute home. And by the time you get home, you're done. It's you're exhausted. You don't have time for your family. You don't have time for friends or anything lifestyle. And so convenience is a big, a big thing to consider when you're looking at jobs. You know, lifestyle, as I mentioned, <laughs> lifestyle is important. We are speech pathologists and we are career minded and we want to help patients, but we also have to do what's right for us. And if working PRN, because it allows you to have more time to do the things that you can, that you want to do, and you have finances to do that, lifestyle is a big, big part of us. And then I, the last one would just be educational. When we're looking at pivoting into something different, take CEUs. If you're moving from a hospital to a nursing home, take CEUs in gerontology and dementia. If you're going into a hospital, take CEU courses for trach and vent, take pharmacology classes, take labs to understand labs better. So whenever, whatever position you're kind of pivoting to, figure out what you need to learn when you go there. That's such a good point. And it just begs me to plug, take them from speechtherapypd.com. <laughs> Perfect, of course. <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, we are at a really wonderful time in our field in that we, there are so many resources available. I can remember when I was first trying to do my CEUs and I was holed up in the library with journals, trying to get them in before the deadline. And now it's just so easy that I think I've gotten two or three ACE awards just because it's so easy. And I was not, I was not there when I had to pour through journal articles alone. You know, it's, it's journal articles still certainly have a place in our education, but even being able to access those journals online, it just makes it easier and more convenient and having so many different 
podcast and video opportunities to take courses is really an exciting, it's really exciting and it's a neat time for education in our field. Absolutely. And even just the cost, you know, it's so much more cost effective to take the online courses. Absolutely. Taking an online course versus flying somewhere, paying for your hotel, paying for the course itself, there's just no comparison. So uh, we are really fortunate at this point in time. And of course, there's still continuing education courses where you need to be on site because maybe it's the feeds competency classes or it's specific techniques, manual therapy that you need to be there for the hands-on portion too. Yes. Yes. There are, there is certainly still a place for that, but it's just, it is nice to have, and it's nice to have options for others. The access, the access to so much information with all of the online courses is so valuable. Absolutely. So Kimri, tell us how you managed your business during the COVID-19 pandemic and lessons learned from the, the required flexibility during that time. Oh boy. There were so many challenges. It seemed like when we would just figure out how to deal with one, another one popped up just as quickly and are still popping up. So it's definitely been an exercise in flexibility and working on understanding our clients' needs. At the very foundation is taking care of patients. Our goal has always been how do we take care of patients in a safe, effective manner? And it just felt there's so many challenges that kept hitting us. You know, initially fees were really scrutinized because they were considered an aerosol generating procedure with COVID. And so we were almost banned from going into facilities to do this. And we had to keep talking to the facilities and saying, okay, but you have other patients that are not COVID positive that still need care and still need access to care. And we were able to explain that and get back in the buildings. But there was just, at that time, there was so much unknown about COVID. So then the concern became, well, you're in other facilities. We don't want you bringing anything to our facility. And so it was a matter of writing and rewriting and rewriting our infection control policies and procedures you know, when early in those early, um, how many did, did you keep track? I think at one point you told me it was like eight or nine times. How many times did you rewrite your infection control? Eight times. Yes. Eight times. And, and we still are revising them. That was, that was eight times within about a three month time period because the CDC kept changing their guidelines. And so we had to change ours to match that. Yeah, it was it was crazy, and uh, fortunately, we have a really nice network of these business owners across the United States. To where we would get on a Zoom call with several businesses and ask, "What challenges are you facing? How did you overcome those? What's your policy? Can we compare policies?" So we were able to work together to find something that was really strict to where it would be approved by nursing home or hospital corporations to get back in. Oh, that collaboration is great to hear. Yeah, we're, we have a pretty supportive group of business owners. That's great. Okay, so you, you got together on your Zoom calls, you wrote and rewrote eight times your infection control policies. And what else? So once we were able to present that to the nursing homes to where they would approve it, and most of them said, well, this is stricter than our own policy, and which is what we wanted. Because as a vendor coming in, we wanted to be, again, that highest standard of care. 
maybe it was a little overkill, but I'd rather err on the side of overkill than be responsible for spreading COVID to another facility. Absolutely. And you wanted to keep your own employees safe. Very much. Yeah. Patients, employees, we all wanted to stay healthy. Yeah. Yes. And so once that we got over that hurdle, we still noticed that our referrals had dropped down. And so, you know, initially we're kind of felt like we were beating on the door saying, we're here, we're here, let us in. We have these policies in place. We can come in. Your your company said we can come in. And then we realized that there was just so much going on in the facilities that they were just so busy putting out fires that, you know, ordering we had speech pathologists that were functioning as CNAs. We had speech pathologists that were functioning as transport. It was all hands on deck. Everybody was doing everything they could to take care of the patients. There really was not a lot of therapy happening at all. And so ordering a fees was kind of the last thing on their mind. And I felt like the analogy I say is I'm standing at the door with a roll of carpet and I'm watching the building burn, but I'm standing outside, but I have your carpet, but I have your carpet. It just wasn't their priority. So then we you know, had to pull back even further and say, what can we do to help? How can we help you? Maybe we're not going to be in there doing fees, but is there something we can do to help you? So then in some of those buildings, we actually added an addendum to our contract to help provide therapy. And so we would go in and do therapy in the facility. With all of the changes with COVID, what was happening in this, and this is very regional, some of the other fees business owners that we've talked to have not experienced this, but in Colorado, Western Colorado, specifically in some of our Pennsylvania buildings, the census of the nursing homes dropped so much, either from deaths or from uh, just not being able to set, accept admissions, that that really affected the employment status of the speech pathologists. And so you'd have a speech pathologist who was working a full caseload, and now they only have maybe two patients on their caseload because the building went from 120 patients to 40. Wow. And not just from deaths. A lot of it was not being able to accept patients the other thing that was happening is when elective procedures were stopped, that meant hip surgeries, that meant knee replacements, that meant, you know, anything non-emergent was was stopped because they were afraid of tying up hospital beds and not being able to take care of COVID patients. So when there there isn't that trickle of orthopedic patients coming into the nursing homes for therapy, what we found is, gosh, there's a, a gentleman who has Parkinson's and nobody looked at his swallowing or his speech until he happened to be in a nursing home after his hip replacement. Or here's a patient who 10 years ago had a stroke and they still have trouble swallowing. And now they're coming back into the system because they had an orthopedic surgery. We weren't seeing that. And so speech pathologists weren't, you know, just from a speech perspective, they didn't have those patients on caseload anymore. So then you had a shifting of staff. So you, because caseload was lower, hospitals and nursing facilities were laying off speech pathologists because they didn't have work for them. So you might have a speech pathologist covering, trying to cover three buildings now. So you, you had speech pathologists shifting around in their positions. And as census was lower, a facility was not going to bring in a traveler therapist for three patients or two patients. 
So there are a whole lot of patients that fell through the cracks during that time. Census, census slumps also caused nurses and CNAs to leave. And then when there were admissions, the facilities didn't have staff to be able to accept a patient. And we're still, we're still in that right now. We have a lot of our facilities that are on hold for accepting patients, not because of anything going on with state tags or infection control or anything like that. They don't have the staff to take care of patients. So our censuses are still much lower than normal. That's interesting. Do you see the staff who left returning at this point? You know, some of them are, but sadly, there was that time period with COVID was and is still so difficult and so heartbreaking that a lot of people have left healthcare. A lot of the CNAs that I know have left healthcare or have gone into private home care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you also see during that time people taking their loved ones out of the skilled nursing facilities and caring for them at home? That's a really good point. Yes. Yes. People were afraid of being in any kind of a circumstance where they may be exposed to more health associated diseases. And also they didn't want to be in those early days, you know, patients were isolated in their rooms. And so a patient who'd had a stroke or had had something that normally would have gone to a skilled facility for some rehab, didn't want to go and hospitals were actually pushing for them to go home. So we had a lot of patients falling through the cracks. That's heartbreaking. So what did you do to, I I know you mentioned that you had your contract changed so your employees could go in and do regular therapy when they were not doing fees, but what else did you do to rebuild your business during this time and after this time? When we realized that patients were not going into the nursing homes, we reached out to a lot of the discharge planners at hospitals. We reached out to some of the physicians and just said, we do have the ability to offer outpatient care. Um, and so we would, you know, picked up more patients that way doing therapy. I felt that I think one of my frustrations that was going on with COVID is there were a lot of people that were, of course, people were very overwhelmed and could hardly see beyond, you know, their immediate circumstances. But I, I felt like as speech pathologists, we have a moral and an ethical obligation to take care of patients. As a healthcare provider, we have, I felt very obligated. And so for me, it was, how do we, not just to keep business alive, but how do we truly take care of patients? What can we do? Who do we need to talk to so that patients are still getting the care they needed? So true. What have you learned through this process? I mean, it's really amazing to think back to 2019 and think of all that you have learned between now and then. It's it's really overwhelming. If you look at any other point in your career, to it, it stands out as really a time of, of learning and probably the most, it was probably the most flexible time of your entire career. What have you learned that might be useful to other business owners? Commit to finding out what your clients need. A lot of times we have a preconceived idea of what we think our clients want. We have a great product. We have a great service to offer, but we may not be packaging that correctly to serve our clients. And 
committing to finding out what the client needs. Listen to them. You may already have a marketing presentation all set up, but you're going to be wasting your time and their time if it's not addressing their needs. When you know exactly what your client needs are and wants, then you can tailor, you can change your speech. You can tailor your program to fit that need. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is commit to being a problem solver for that need. It's going to require out-of-the-box thinking. It's going to be different than what you normally have planned, but think outside of the box. The other thing is keep patient care at the forefront. When you're having the conversations with the decision makers and your clients, once you've ID'd the problem, keep pushing for standards of excellence and care for the patients. Keep the focus on patient care and safety and on helping their patients. And then I think for me, the other huge component to having a, a business is finding, finding a trusted team of people. We are speech pathologists. We're clinicians. We have excellent skills in speech pathology. But how many of us have taken a business course or how many of us have actually done any marketing types of classes? We need professionals on our team. You know, I see a lot of times I see on Facebook people asking questions, should I become an S Corp or an LLC? That's not a question for your colleagues on Facebook. That's a question for an accountant that you're going to be working with. Another one is a business attorney. There's packages out there where you can purchase a a program that will give you contracts or will give you HR forms or whatever you need. And those are great, but take those forms to your attorney because if anything happens, your attorney is going to be defending you and he needs to, he or she needs to know what's in that contract to see if it's defendable in your state. That is a good point. So your accountant, business attorney, business consultants, did you find them all locally in your states? And since you have, you actually cover four states or did you go outside your state? So my, my attorney and my accountant are local and that just makes sense because they understand my current local laws. My business consultant is actually in your neck of the woods. He's actually in Ohio and he keeps me he keeps me focused on growth, on policies and procedures. He keeps me focused on the money, making sure there's money coming in because as speech pathologists, we want to just take care of patients. And sometimes we don't always think that it has to be a viable business <laughs> and make money. But no, his, uh, he's actually somebody that I knew personally and has just become a huge role in my business as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's tempting to to take on some of those roles yourself. and. In some cases with a small business, a person cannot afford to have to outsource. But it really sounds like in your case, outsourcing has really paid off. Yes, I, I am not an accountant. I don't have that type of mindset. And, you know, fortunately, I haven't had need for an attorney other than just to check over my forms. But I'm, I'm very grateful that I have somebody in my corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gives you that added confidence for sure. The other thing that we have to look at in our profession is finding a network of colleagues. You know, as I mentioned, we have the Association for Fees Business Owners, and that allows us to, we actually meet once a year and discuss 
It's a continuing education program. We, we learn more about policies and procedures, but it gives us that chance to network with each other and call up, you know, different, different companies and say, what challenges are you facing? How have you overcome this, this problem? And I think within our profession, I think that's a very, very, that's one of the great things about our profession. We are a helping profession and we like to help each other as well. Absolutely. How long has that association been in existence? Do you know? Um, it's been, gosh, it's hard to keep track with COVID. Right. <laughs> COVID just, has done crazy things to our sense of time, yeah. for sure. We had two me two annual meetings and then COVID happened. And so where are we, five, six, five or six, maybe five years? I'm not exactly sure on that. Sorry, I don't have that detail. Oh, no, that's okay. But at some point, someone who was a fees business owner recognized that there was a need for that collaboration and started the association. And the part of the goal with that association is, of course, not just the networking, but it's keeping the standard of care high. There's a pretty specific, ASHA doesn't have specific guidelines on what it takes to be competent with fees. But as an association, we really push for competency and, and we just, we want the service to be ethical. We want the service to be very good for our patients. Now that surprises me that ASHA doesn't have specific guidelines for fees. They don't, they just say prove competency. Hmm. Is that consistent with all areas? Is, Is that why they don't specifically for fees? I'm not really sure on that. I know there is a push from with a lot of the business owners and a lot of the bigger hospitals to come up with an actual program, a specific program, just because again, we want the high, we want that standard of care to be high. We don't want somebody taking just an online course without any practical hands-on and then trying to go out there and start applying fees in their hospital or in a a mobile fee setting. Absolutely. You need that hands-on experience for fees. And mentorship. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things, anybody can pass the scope. After a couple of practices, anybody can learn to pass the scope, but it's learning how to conduct a proper evaluation and then reviewing the video and and interpreting it and understanding what's going on. So reflecting on our earlier discussion about pivoting your career, what are your keys of wisdom for early SLP professionals or those seasoned professionals who are contemplating a career move? Sure. So the first thing I would say is start broad. When we're in grad school and we have a lot of clinical experiences, we're able to see what we like. You know, initially when I went to grad school, I thought I wanted to work with early intervention. Oh, wow. Very different from what you're doing now. (laughs) Completely different than what I'm doing. And I, I was able to, you know, I had a clinical in early intervention and it was not a good fit for me. And the medical setting just fit for me. And I loved it ever since grad school. So, but when we're in graduate school, we have those various clinical placements from schools to hospitals to whatever clinics are available. And it allows us to kind of experience uh, all the different settings. And so I say, when you're starting your career, obviously you have to have a job, but the broader you can be, the better. I I counsel new grads away from starting in specialty clinics, unless they just know that's exactly what they want for their entire life. (laughs) So a hospital and nursing home settings are great places to start because you have that breadth of patient care. The other thing I like to encourage people to do is 
really ask for cross training. So, and you have to be an advocate for yourself as, you know, I was a manager and my brain was inundated with so many of the day in day out business aspects that I didn't always think about, Oh, one of my therapists actually wants to train in another area. I didn't think about that. It wasn't that I didn't want to give them the opportunity. I just didn't even think about it. So if you're in a hospital and maybe you do adults, but maybe you have interest in the neonates, ask to cross train with your therapist who does that, that program. So be an advocate. The other thing would be figure out what you enjoy. What are you passionate about? What is what really interests you when you study about it? And that we kind of went back, talked about that earlier on the more passionate you are about a subject, the better therapist you're going to be. So when you start broad, it allows you to look at a lot of areas, but then start start honing that into what are you really passionate about? Which types of patients, which diagnoses do you really like? And then I also like to encourage people to whatever position or job they're in to find the bright spot. There's always, always a bright spot. You may have to look a little deeper for it, but there's always a bright spot. And before you pivot, I say, learn, take everything you can from that setting and learn everything you can. So let's go back to the bright spot. What what do you mean by that? Well, a lot of people might be disgruntled with their current position, but there's still something that's a bright spot. Either there's a certain type of patient or there's a colleague or there's a better speech and hearing month that they can jump into and learn, you know, start a program. There's always a bright spot in there. Maybe it's it maybe it's tagging along and following the your rehab manager and deciding if you want to move into management. There's always something good you can find. That is so true. And I love that you mentioned that because there is, you know, we probably have all been in different settings where people were disgruntled for one reason or another. And uh, the people who were able to find that bright spot are the ones who I always admired and tried, tried to find that as well. Because you're right, there is always a bright spot. And it that bright spot might just be one patient in your day that right. really shines brightly. And carries you through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and focus, as we are in life, focus on the positives. When When we see patients make progress, it's so motivating and inspiring for us as well. I think in every setting, there's something we can learn even if we're not maybe challenged professionally, then we need to look at it personally. What is the challenge that I need to take away from this? And maybe it's interpersonal skills. Maybe we need to work on our interpersonal skills before we move to another setting. Absolutely. Every challenge offers a lesson. Right. And I'm a big, I'm a big fan of journaling because I find when I journal, And I read my journal from three years ago or four years ago. I find patterns in that of, oh, I was still having trouble with that issue four years ago. Maybe that's something I need to look at. (laughs) Very good point. And, you know, I think some people complain about uh, their coworkers or they complain about their boss or they complain about this. and, And you hear that at the next job they go to and you hear that at the next job they go to. And I'm thinking, hmm, what's the common denominator here? 
oh, it's you. Maybe you need to work on something. (laughs) Exactly. Good point. (laughs) All right. So finding the bright spot, figuring out what we need to work on, journaling. What else when someone is contemplating a move? You know, some people are the personality that they like to just jump in and dive in with both feet. I'm much more of a tester. And so I like to continue, I like to encourage people to work a little PRN at a different job setting to see if they really like it. So they may have their full-time job and then, you know, do a weekend a month or do a couple evenings somewhere else to just kind of ease into that setting to see if you like it. It gives you an opportunity to see if you like the setting. It also gives you an opportunity to see which areas of your knowledge base might be lacking to where you need some more education. And then it also gives you a great opportunity to start networking with other people. Good advice. Very true. And sometimes the best experiences teach us, well, that's not what I want to do. Absolutely. And that's okay. And for me, better that I found that out by working a couple evenings and weekends than I dove into that head first with a full-time position. You're right. Absolutely. All right. So working PRN and then finding a mentor. Yes. I think having a mentor within your within your profession is is so valuable. They can look at the areas and even just having a conversation, they'll pick out, Hey, when you talk about this, you seem really passionate or you seem really excited when you talk about this. Have you thought about looking into that area a little bit more or so not just having a mentor to teach you how to be a better clinician, but also as a sounding board. Mm -hmm. So, but when one wants to find a new area of expertise, How do you recommend finding that mentor? Yes, and I know that can be kind of difficult. I think ASHA has a couple of programs that are set up, but right now we are so connected on social media. There are so many different forums for professionals in you know within speech pathology that if you just start, I think you can just ask. You know, we are such a a caretaking profession. And we like to help each other. So I encourage people, if you don't have somebody local or somebody at your your current, you know, if you don't have a colleague at your current work site, just reach out on social media and ask people to be mentors. I know when I was working at the teaching hospital, there were, you know, it was a big department and we would have lunch together. And I learned so much just sitting and having lunch with my colleagues, things that I didn't learn in school about just people in general or patient care or you know, simple things like, gosh, if a patient has a urinary tract infection, it's going to affect their cognition. And, you know, I learned so much just by sitting and listening to my colleagues at lunchtime. So I encourage people to really take advantage of the colleagues that they have right in their initial work environment. You know, as I said, we're such a supportive profession and having better quality speech pathologists makes us all better and it gives us a better reputation as a profession. So I think those of us who have been in the field for a long time, I encourage us as well, and I'm speaking to myself in this area too, be a mentor. It refreshes your love for the profession. You know, younger students can teach you something too, but it it just ensures that we have a higher quality of speech pathologists coming out. Very true. Very true. And we are in such a wonderful time with social media that that we can easily reach someone 
We're not isolated in our facility or for someone going back into the field, isolated, working on their resume. They can reach out to just about anyone through social media with a little bit of detective work finding people. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So tell us about your consulting services and how you evolved into that role, because you have a consulting business as well as a fees business. I'm actually, do you sleep? <laughs> I do quite well, actually. <laughs> it's, it's the best way to shut my brain off. <laughs> okay. Because I'm going through this and I'm like, wow, you, you really fit a lot into your day. So, so yes, consulting services. How long have you been consulting and how did you pivot into that role? So I think that started a bit because of my management experience. Right now, there's a lot of nursing facilities and hospitals that are corporate owned. And so those larger corporations have, they have policies and procedures, they don't need any consulting. But there's still a few mom and pop companies out there that don't really understand caseload maximization, they don't really understand profit maximization, they don't know how to grow their caseload. And so we, we've helped And how that kind of happened was I'd go in to do a mobile fees and then I would talk to the speech pathologist and kind of, and kind of just ask, wow, why do you only have two patients on your caseload? You have all these patients in this facility that are on puree diets or thick liquids or something. Surely they don't need to be on all those diets. Let's, let's kind of look at those patients and see if you don't have something to provide care-wise that that can advance them a little bit better and make their quality of life better. So it kind of just morphed out of being in the buildings and seeing what was going on. And also, as speech pathologists, we will never look at problem solving or dementia in the same way a nurse or a CNA or anybody else does. We're so trained in cognition and problem solving. I liken it to A physical therapist or an occupational therapist will never transfer a patient on or off a toilet the same way nursing does. It's just not in our DNA to do that. When a PT and an OT do it, it's not just a transfer. It's a therapeutic procedure. They're constantly cueing and coaching the patient on how to do that best. We're not any different when it comes to problem solving. You know, if a patient with dementia can't find their socks, or they can't find something, they don't remember how to get dressed. We're never going to approach that problem in the same way a nurse does. We're going to look at it from breaking it down step by step. So I think just going into the nursing homes and and seeing some of the, seeing some of the current patient deficits that existed, we were able to help grow that caseload. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So did you consult with the SLPs or once you established that there was a need, did you then go to the administration and then kind of outline your services? So we talked to mainly rehab directors because they're the ones that need to grow the caseload. They're the ones that are responsible for being profitable. And so we kind of, we just started talking to rehab directors and saying, gosh, I think you can pick up your caseload a little more if you did these things. and absolutely making sure they were truly skilled services and they were truly necessary for the patient. But sometimes very small tweaks 
in a patient's environment can make a big difference for them and really increase their independence. And that's what we want to do with patients. We want to keep them at their highest level of function and to keep them as independent as possible. We also had rehab directors contacting us. There might be some interpersonal issues with their speech pathologists, or there may be there may have been times when a speech pathologist didn't want to pick up a patient for whatever reason. And the rehab director would reach out to us and say, this is our situation. This is the scenario. What do you think? And, you know, we were able to have from as a speech pathologist speaking to a physical or occupational therapy rehab director, we were able to present it from a speech pathology standpoint to say, you know, they're right. That patient is not appropriate for the caseload. And here's why. Or actually that patient's very appropriate. Does your therapist have a deficit in their skill set that they need some help with so that they know how to take care of that patient better? Okay. And then from that point, the rehab director handles it, or do you go in and mediate or work directly with the SLP? So sometimes we just give the rehab director some talking points or I point them to research articles, or I point them to here's a new continuing ed class that your therapist might like. Um, And sometimes it's talking to the therapist and just get obviously getting both sides of the story and then saying, have you thought about this? And that's another fun part of being in all the different buildings. I don't have to get involved in the building politics because I'm not there full time. But I can be an influence on the on the staff speech pathologist in in encouraging them to practice at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just being that Martian on the outside landing on Earth and being able to look at it from a new perspective really helps with the problem solving. Right. We find that we love what we do. <laughs> we get to be a little nerdy about it. We get to really dive into the research. And so we know, you know, as consultants, we know tips and tricks and different therapy techniques that a therapist maybe hasn't thought about. So we get to share those. And I think we're passionate. We love what we do. And I think that just kind of comes out and rubs off on the treating therapist to where they do reach out to us and say, I have this patient. What would you do? That's wonderful. All right. So not that I'm saying that you have to do anything else because you are already doing so much, but in getting to know you a little bit, I know you have some current goals. So what are your current goals? Would be hiring. We need to hire more speech pathologists. We are kind of maxed out right now on our outpatient caseload because we just need more staff. So that's growth is a wonderful problem to have but it's also difficult to find find therapists. And you now have an outpatient clinic that was, that was open during the pandemic. Right, right. Growing the outpatient practice is always a goal for us. We want to we want to be able to reach more patients again because we specialize, we're able to offer I believe a higher level of care. And so just um, you know, at this point, I'm not even marketing to physicians groups because we have so many referrals coming in. I, I need more therapists. How many therapists do you have working in the clinic right now? So in our Colorado clinic, we have, we have myself and then I have two other therapists that work with me. Okay. And then at each of your fees uh, sites, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Colorado, and Utah, how many therapists do you have? 
So I do, I personally do a mix of the fees and the outpatient. I work with all of the dysphagia patients with head and neck cancer. So I have another fees trained speech pathologist in Colorado that helps me out. In Pennsylvania, Ohio, we have two people out there. And then I have somebody in Utah that does, she manages and takes care of all the fees in Utah. Okay. And, and you're, so, but you're mainly looking for more people in the outpatient setting. In the outpatient setting is where we really want to focus that growth right now. The other, with our mobile fees practice, we're pretty well staffed in, in the areas we cover, but you know, contracts change all the time. And I noticed in some of the notes we had, I think somewhere in the notes, you had something about, we had 85 contracts or something and, and I've recounted. And now I think we're at 142 contracts that we have in the different States we provide services in. Wow. So 142 different facilities. Yes. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. It's exciting. They don't always refer, but we at least have the contract for when they're ready to refer. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You've got that carpet for when, for when they're ready, (laughs) you're ready to deliver it. It's back up and they get a speech pathologist back. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So during the pandemic lockdown, you saw patients outpatients in homes. Did you also do teletherapy during that time? We did a little bit of teletherapy. But that was really because of the emergency state that everything was in. And we were trying to figure out what is the best way to move in and out of different environments. And also we had patients who didn't want to come to outpatient. They didn't want anybody in their home. So we did do a little bit of teletherapy, but that's really a whole specialty in and of itself as far as what kind of technology you need and the correct platforms to do teletherapy on. So I would say we used it more as a stopgap just to take care of patients' immediate needs than than to actually make it a big part of our practice. Okay. So at this point in time, is teletherapy a part of your practice at all? We have, that I can think of, we have one patient right now who does teletherapy, and that's just because she lives over an hour away, and we happen to accept her insurance. Okay. So during the pandemic, you saw the need to, you were seeing patients in their homes, and you decided that there was a need to open an outpatient clinic. So what prompted you to open that outpatient clinic? Sure. It was, you know, part of... The previous question we had talked about is rebuilding a business after COVID or in the midst of COVID still. And that was, again, as I had mentioned, when some of our referrals from the hospitals and nursing homes decreased, we had more time on our hands. And so we were able to market a little bit at some of the doctor's offices. And again, as we had said, with discharge planners to do outpatient. So as our caseload grew, it really became impossible to be able to see all the patients we had and still have that travel time to get between homes. So we transitioned to, we had, we had the need and we had the space. So we opened the outpatient clinic. Okay. And now do you still see people in their homes? We do some, there's always a special circumstance where for whatever reason, a patient really needs to be seen in the home, but it's I liked going into homes, but after having that actual physical outpatient space, I love it so much more, not just from the efficiency standpoint of it, but also, you know, when I 
wake up in the morning, I run through my schedule and I, when we were seeing patients in the homes, I'd have to run through my schedule and think, what materials do I need for all of these patients that I'm going to be seeing today? And now having the outpatient space, everything's right there. And if I need to change treatment plans or change what my original plan was, all of our therapy equipment is right there. So having the outpatient space has been, it's just been a, such a blessing for us and our patients. And you had mentioned, you'd asked about seeing patients in the home. That's still really functional for patients. And so sometimes, you know, a patient will say, when I'm sitting here in front of you, I don't have any problems, but at home I have trouble. And so we'll, we'll go into the home. We'll schedule a session to go into the home and see what happens. And I, I think of one gentleman who he would come to therapy. He did all his exercises. He wouldn't cough one single time during therapy. And we were doing MDTP. So we're doing big amounts of food the entire session. And I went to his home and he had, so he had had a stroke in that his right side was weaker. And when we did the fees, we found that he had, you know, a lot of residue and just different problems in the right side. And so a lot of our strengthening exercises and, and focused on pharyngeal strengthening. And when we went to his home to see how he ate his, he liked to watch TV while he was eating and his TV was positioned to the left side of the table. And so he had right side weakness. And so by turning his head to the left every time to watch TV while he was eating, he was essentially closing off the left stronger side of his throat, forcing everything down the weaker right side. So that was, we would have never seen that if we hadn't been in his functional environment. That is a great example. And was he living alone or did he have family living with him? He had family. He lived with his wife and his daughter, but again, they're not trained like we are to look for those types of things. So they had never even considered that that might be a problem for him. Mm-hmm. That is such a great example that that trained eye and that outsider coming in and looking at it from a new perspective and problem solving is is really key to key to SLPs. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't for him. He was older. He was not going to stop how he ate. He was still going to watch TV. So we just changed his position at the table so that he was looking at the table or he was looking at his television straight on rather than turning his head to the left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was no there was no need to stop watching TV. The the need was the positioning. For him, right. For him. Right. And we would have never seen that if we hadn't made that exception and gone into his home. Mm -hmm. So when you were in homes, you were growing your business in homes and you said, okay, now this is not efficient. I think that there's an opportunity for an outpatient clinic in our area. What considerations did you have as far as finding the location? for that outpatient clinic? I was really fortunate. I had somebody actually come to me and say, do you have interest in renting this space? I was extremely fortunate. Yes. And it just turned out that it was a a good location close, you know, in good proximity to where the homes were that where you were servicing. Right. And we're a fairly small town. And so we have, we have people travel. It's fairly rural. So we have people that are used to driving for appointments. Well, that's great. All right. Just also for clarification, do you bring your mobile fees unit to homes? Do you do mobile fees in private homes? That's a great question. We do not. 
we, when we do a fees, so usually, you know, we have a referral from a physician and we like to start with the instrumental diagnostic as appropriate. We actually, before we had our outpatient clinic, we rented space from another outpatient facility to do fees because fees, fees cannot be done in the home. Medicare won't, will not reimburse. And then most insurance companies follow suit with that. They want fees done in a clinic setting. So we don't do fees in the home. Very interesting. So how has your caseload evolved since you started the outpatient clinic, the actual physical clinic versus going into people's homes? Right. So when we are doing the outpatient, we were primarily focusing on dysphagia care. And initially, it was a lot of patients were our main caseload was patients with head and neck cancer that had dysphagia going through radiation or surgical changes. And we still see all of, we're fortunate to have that relationship with our radiation and oncology doctors to where we still see all of their patients. And we do a lot of neuro dysphagia as well. And I think because we did, because we do fees, a lot of times when we scope a patient, we find something anatomical that's unusual. And so we're sending patients to ENT quite a bit because we see something that, you know, we can describe it, but we definitely cannot diagnose any anatomical abnormalities. So we're sending our patients to the ENTs just to have things checked out. And so that started a relationship with ENTs to where then they would start sending us course, their dysphagia patients, but also their voice patients, which really prompted us and pushed us into doing some significant education and continuing education in voice. And it's turned out to be a field that I surprisingly love. And we're, I'm not speaking, we knew, we're not working with voice performance. We're working more on chronic cough, dysphonia, muscle tension, dysphonia, those types of clients. And so we're done a lot of continuing education in those areas to try to catch up to speed you guys had a wonderful presentation by a speech pathologist talking about chronic cough. So growing it in that area as well. In Pennsylvania, one of the speech pathologists out there is very interested in pediatrics. And so she is working on getting her competency with pediatric fees. Just there's nobody in her area providing really any dysphagia services for pediatrics at all. So she recognized that that need in her area. So she's getting trained to do pediatric fees. And then she's also taken quite a few courses and really starting to get a lot of experience with the oral myofunctional therapy and just pediatric dysphagia. So we've actually started outpatient pediatric dysphagia in Western Pennsylvania as well. Well, that's great. You say, you know, seeing the need in your areas and then going back to that continuing education piece, which I don't mean for this to be a commercial, but that's why speechtherapypd.com is here, right? It's so necessary. So we're getting close on time, but I just do have one last question. So you mentioned that you were looking for more therapists for your outpatient clinic. What do you advise to SLPs who left the field during challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic and are now considering a return? That's a great question. Though, as you mentioned, that critical time was was really stressful and heartbreaking in a lot of ways for speech pathologists, where I know the burnout rate was high. And also, as we had mentioned before, sometimes speech pathologists weren't even doing therapy. They were functioning as a CNA. 
or transport or whatever hands on deck that facility needed. And I would just say things are starting to shift again to where therapy is, you know, as is a focus again. And so try it, step back into it, try it. If you need education, as you mentioned, the CEUs, there's so many things out there. And as speech pathologists, we have so many settings that we can work in from, you know, pediatrics and schools to hospitals to outpatient nursing homes. There's so many settings. And so I would just say, start, start dabbling again. And if you're not ready to go back full time, start dabbling and figure out what you like. Again, find your passion, take a variety of continuing ed courses and see what lands and what hits. You know, I was thinking about that question and in November, ASHA's coming up and ASHA offers so many courses and networking opportunities. The other thing about ASHA is in the vendor hall, you know, pay attention to the vendor hall. And as you walk through the vendor hall and there's, there's all the different companies that offer product or services Talk to them because, gosh, you may even find that you want to be a sales rep or you may want to do something else within the field. You don't have to, so to speak, throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are so many avenues within our profession. Absolutely. So true. So for those people who find that after a little soul searching, fees is the direction that they want to go and specialize, what first steps would you recommend? So are you talking about going out on your own or are you talking about starting a fees program within your hospital or I'm talking about someone who wants to become fees certified or fees trained. Okay. So first thing would be making sure you have a background, a strong background in dysphagia care. You know, if somebody calls me and said they've worked in the school system their whole career and they want to do fees, pretty leery to have any, uh, any further discussions with them because they don't have the background in dysphagia care. So having, having that strong background is a good, it's it's really necessary to start. And then the first step would be a weekend course where you are taking the educational coursework, as well as having the hands-on scoping practice by some of the reputable companies that are out there. You'll get at a course, you'll get what we call normal passes to where you'll You'll pass the scope on instructors, and then you'll pass the scope on other participants within the class. And so learning how to navigate the scope and then starting to call out food trials. Um, Once you have learned to pass the scope on what we consider to be normal anatomy or non-patient, that's really where you just start your training. You really need to find a mentor after that to work with you on passing the scope with patients. Patients are not going to sit still like your colleagues and your instructors did. So learning how to work with a moving target patient and how to call out to have the person feed them trials um, and figuring out which compensatory strategies or positioning strategies you want to try while you have the scope in a patient is, you know, it's a pretty fast paced type of type of uh, procedure. And so having that mentorship to help you know how to navigate the scope, how to progress through the trials, and then following that, the interpretation is the most critical part of doing a fees. It's not enough to say there was residue in the throat. You have to figure out why was there residue? What's the impairment? What caused it? Rather than just saying, 
pass or fail, or they aspirated, or they had residue. The biggest part of learning to do fees is the mentorship on interpreting the, the um, assessment. Very good point. Well, thank you. That That is a good starting place for people who are interested. And at, that is also a good ending place for us. It was so great to talk with you today, Kimri. Is there anything that you would like to add before you go? I encourage people to reach out to each other, network, find mentors. If you're a seasoned speech pathologist, consider mentoring a younger clinician. It's just so critical in our field to stay connected. And I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. Well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate all your time and effort. And it's been great to have you. So can you provide some your uh, contact information for those who might want to reach out to you? Sure. So my name is Kimberly Schwartz. And my our business website is www.dysphagia-diagnostics.com. And you can email me through that website. Uh, the business name is Advanced Dysphagia Diagnostics, LLC. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much and have a great day. Thanks, Mary Beth. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.